welcome to the Box Podcast. You got your usual suspects here. Bonnie out <laughs> in Texas land. Tim, myself, that's me, out here in Californiaville. And uh, we are, what are we doing? I don't know. I don't even know what I'm saying right now. What are we doing, um, Bonnie? Well, we, <laughs> we, are, we are here to introduce our guest for this week. So, oh, yeah, um, right. yeah, many of you may know him. He might be new. He um, is a, for the past three years, has been a part of Red Letter Christians. His name is Don Golden. And he has seen a lot of things, looks at things from really different perspectives. And so today on the podcast, he's going to talk about some of those perspectives. But um, he also discusses um, sort of what we can do as a saved people in order to save people. So um, I think he hits many levels of that, a practical level, um, but also maybe even he does some political levels and then even a financial level at the end with some of the new stuff he's doing on how to um, kind of put your resources together with people who have passion and drive in order to make a sustainable change in the world. Yeah. So some practical stuff. Um, and then we just wanted to, to throw out there again that Hey, some of this may be, uh, there may be language or, or um, posture or ang angles to these things that you don't agree with or that you are, um, uh, how do we say that? We're just trying to, we're trying to remind everybody that this community is based on bringing in people and then trying to get their best stuff from them and, um, and agreeing to disagree sometimes, which some of you may disagree. Some of you may think that Don is like 100% right on and some of you may think that he's not and... Um, that's totally valid either way, but that we're creating a space for that, that we're creating a safe space for people to come together and talk about these things. And he's talking about refugees and he's talking about uh, marginalized folks and he's talking about um, economically, uh, people who are suffering economically. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we wanted to make sure that he was able to bring all that stuff in. And um, so Again, we just want to create a space for everybody to have a conversation about that. And if you have thoughts or concerns or critiques or you just want to say, hey, that was awesome, you know, we want to have those conversations with you. And Don, you'll hear in this interview, is also very open to um, yeah. to talking with folks. And he gives his email address out and whatnot. So Yeah. And we'll do an outro, a quick outro at the end as well. Yeah. All right, so we hope you guys love this. Um, without anything else, this is our conversation with Don Golden. All right, Bonnie and Tim here with a very special guest, Don Golden. Don, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be with you today. Oh, we're just so thrilled. So normally we have the guests introduce themselves, but I kind of want to bury the lead a bit because <laughs> your story and what you do now is so fascinating. So we'll definitely get to um, sort of what you do now, but um, later, but I'm dying to know and I'm so interested in, I heard you on the Robcast and one of the things that Tim and I both, we both listened to it. And one of the things that got our attention was um, discussing the myth of power mm -hmm. and um, exactly how we sort of face that as a church and especially as um, America. And mm -hmm. that I loved your tie-in that you do. And so this is what I would love to talk to you about first is when we discuss the story of the Exodus, that there is this God who liberates. And so if we are a liberated people, we are called to liberate. And um, so many of the discussions that we've been having lately on the Vox podcast, especially when it comes to politics, like small and big politics, is uh, voting with the most marginalized person in mind and even living our lives that way. Um, but I think that's really good for a lot of people in theory. Um, it's also something that people I don't think can necessarily connect to when they read their Bible, but to things I've heard you say, um, and that Tim and I picked up on that you said was that privilege can so disrupt and destroy even our hermeneutic and how we read the text. So mm -hmm. if you want to start there, I think that that would just be an excellent place to get the conversation going. Sure. I'm happy to. Um, I think the Bible is preeminently interested in uh, 
in human relationships and how mm. we treat one another in social arrangements. Um, yeah. We tend to, I think, it feels like to me, at least coming from an evangelical background, that we, we tend to think that the next life is the one that is um, elevated above all else. You know, yeah. Christianity is a is a way of securing, you know, in, in a reductionist sense, your ticket to heaven and, you know, securing that fire insurance so you can go to heaven and escape hell. And uh, not here to argue, although I think there's a lot to learn about, uh, about the realities of that. Although if you do write a book about it and you call it Love Wins, you might um, get thrown out of the evangelical <laughs> church and you build it. You might later a have a movie. Well, not that we know anybody that's done that. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Not dismissing the role, that reality, that hell and afterlife, but uh, the Bible concerns a covenant people. Mm-hmm. And that covenant is about a community, and that involves very much social arrangements. Right. And in fact, we enact love of God through love of neighbor. You know, mm. It's not a, it's not a either or. You cannot. How do you love the God you haven't seen if you don't love the neighbor that you can uh, see? So mm. that means that those who have power and the who have the ability uh, to uh, th- those who have the power have a unique responsibility to what the Bible says: uphold justice and righteousness. In fact, both of those words have to be reclaimed because righteousness is often, you know, personal piety and self-righteousness has all all kinds of connotations. But in the Old Testament, it's really dealing with the rightness of our relationships, the the justice of our orientation, social arrangements. Mm -hmm. So uh, it is true that in the hands of the powerful, uh, the gospel can become a structure of justification for how we uh how we define and and how we seek to justify and keep our our power our our privilege Um, whereas in biblical reality the gospel is the pathway of liberation so in the hands of a latin american priest or a or in an enslaved african like douglas uh frederick douglas here in baltimore uh the gospel is resurrection power, a power that brings life on the other side of death, that that can overcome the forces of Pharaoh in Egypt and Egypt mm. and bring a people to liberation. So uh, I, I'm convinced that, that our power lens in the United States is at the heart of our gospel critique. It needs to be, mm. that we're really dealing with, um, with, with the... the, the a confrontation of material forces and how, how we live and who has what. And because uh, evangelicals in America today are so powerful, they have a unique responsibility to submit that power to the gospel, which is really listening to the cry of human suffering around, uh, around us and using our power and our privilege to uphold justice and righteousness among those uh, who are weak and marginalized. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. And I think, you know, something that um, I think often happens, and you can tell me if you agree with this, but something that we see a lot, and we've talked a lot about this on the podcast, but um, sometimes when you're in a position of power, and then um, you start to listen to voices of the marginalized and their needs, their concerns, their pain um, is brought up to be equal with yours. I think sometimes what can happen is that equality can feel like oppression to the, mm. to the people in power. Yeah, and, um, a, I was thinking about you and the four geographical places that you talk about that we've, we can relate to in the biblical story, because I really do firmly believe that if we go deep enough into ourselves and find our story, we can find our neighbor's story. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested about those four geographical places. If you could touch on that, because mm-hmm. I think that when we put ourselves in the middle of that narrative, it kind of opens the empathy door. And mm-hmm. then equality doesn't have to feel like oppression. It can feel um, like the gospel, really. Yeah. You know, I think you put your finger on something um, that strikes to the heart of uh, our situation today. That um, there, there's a fear of displacement among mm-hmm. you know, if you're a if you're a middle-aged white evangelical man like me. Um, you know, you, there's nobody with a t-shirt about your cause, you know, there's, there's, there's yeah, no, there's that's no hashtag done golden poor white man, you know, that's just right. not happening. Yeah. 
um, but I don't think that we need to be afraid of displacement. We are growing. Mm. Uh, we are emerging. We are we, we are on together a liberation journey. And white men, you know, founded this country, and we're privileged in the uh, in, in in you know a, dem- a democracy for white uh, landowning men. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, we we've been together as a nation pursuing a more perfect union, and that means opening up uh, democracy seeing equality to others and and that uh that pattern which centers on those four geographic locations in the old testament i believe you don't have to be a christian to recognize the sweep of history that this ancient memory you know you're talking yeah. about an ancient book that right. has at least um, sort of empirically kept together one group of people jews right. for you know a millennia through all kinds of oppression and rising and falling of their favor and their kingdoms and somehow it's still together and so there's a lot of amazing wisdom and i think that it is a revelation of a pattern mm. the way that the, the universe is put together and the way that the, the nature of god and, uh, and and if we can understand ourselves in those four geographic locations and if we can understand god or if you're a secular person just accepting uh, uh, sort of, this is how things work. This is how ultimate reality is. I right. think we learn a lot. And, you know, Egypt, the place of suffering, the place in which we are disempowered, that we find ourselves under someone else's boot heel mm. or some other boot heel, maybe addiction right. or, or death or despair or whatever, you know, that, that is just a human reality that we find ourselves in Egypt. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Sinai is, you know, that place that, liberation brings you and brings you into your full identity and marries you to a sense of purpose and uh, calls you into the world Mm. with something, you know, fire in your bones. And then Jerusalem uh, is that place of power and privilege and uh, and authority and and blessing. Um, But it's also that place of choice. You know, what Mm. do I do? Do I forget my story? Um, Mm. Do I, as the Deuteronomist said, you know, think I did this with my own hands? Um, do I lose the plot? Right. Uh, and if so, and we all do in different ways, we find ourselves marching into that fourth location, Babylon, that exile of irrelevance where, man, you know, we, we, we lost the plot for, the, for, the, for Israel. We used to have God literally in a box, you know, he was in the Ark of the Covenant and he dwelled among us and we lost all that. And here we've, right. we've hung our harps by the rivers of Babylon and now we weep for all that we've mm. lost. And the, the amazing thing about the universe, about the cyclical nature of, of things, and about the God that we serve as biblical Christians is that this God is a God of second chances mm. and uh, the, the hope of another exodus in which you can come out again, and yet this time having learned lessons, you know, the, the law that you wrote in stone and you tried to follow its rules, after that suffering just might be written as Jeremiah says on your heart. And it might be the most natural thing that you do is follow, follow this God. So, you know, that's the pattern of history. Um, it's at work in all of us. It's a work. It's at work around us. And I think it is the axis, the axis upon which America is now following. I believe is that, mm-hmm. that, uh, Jerusalem, Babylon axis in which we have begun to, lose the thread. And I can tell you when a, when a nation of immigrants discusses seriously putting up a wall to keep out immigrants, you are marching into an exile of irrelevance. You, the days are numbered. You, you will not retain your power if the God of the Bible is true. If you're serious, if you can seriously entertain that conversation, which we, we are doing not, and not just wall, but the wall metaphorically as a, as a, as a way of protecting power and privilege for ourselves. Yeah. No, I think I heard you say, and Tim, you can back me up, the statistics that you said that last year um, we let in 100,000 refugees, right? Yeah, let me give you this number because I think, you know. And can you define refugee? I think that there's a big, uh, people are uh, misunderstanding that that's yeah, very Let me paint this picture. You know, sometimes the, the fog of policy, well, the, the fog of political tension and the extreme voices and the political news entertainment world, are you right. of Fox or are you of CNN or MSNBC? 
we, 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 we just don't know what to, it's like going, it's like taking your car to the, to the garage and you get that call that says it's going to be $1,700. You need a new flux capacitor. You're not getting enough. <laughs> you literally have no idea what they're talking about. Right. But then when they, you look in the fine print and you see that that's $95 for a light bulb. Hmm. Okay. Right. Wait yeah. A minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now the whole thing, I don't know about the flux capacitor, but I do know, I can go to the parts store, get that light bulb for $4 and figure and out like how to watch a YouTube video. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's, there are things that we hear that are an indicator of, of uh, like a, it's like a, a spiritual barometer. Mm. And there is one of those figures right now that is a spiritual barometer over evangelicalism. Uh, if, if you want to know if Jerry Falwell and Franklin Graham are really just passionately fighting for the truth of the gospel, here is an indicator to let you know that that's a very questionable conclusion, a very seriously questionable conclusion. And that has to do with refugees. A, we know that the immigrant and the foreigner among us is a biblical barometer. You know, it, it's yeah. telling you in the Bible, this is the God of the widow, the, the poor, the widow, the, and the, the, uh, the foreigner. Right. That's who this God is. He privileges those voices. If you want to know how the people of God are doing, don't look at their temple or their structures or, or mm. the energy behind their religious festivals. Look at the condition of the widow, the poor, the orphan, the foreigner. So we know yeah. that. That's a basic you know, 101, the gospel to the poor. Uh, a refugee defined by the Geneva Convention is someone who has established a reasonable fear of persecution and they flee, they cross a national border based on that fear of a well-founded fear of persecution. That's okay. a refugee. Okay. America, beginning in the 1970s with the Vietnam boat people, the, the, uh, the Vietnam exodus of our, those who had worked with us, by the way, in Vietnam, they fled because we had abandoned them. We had ignored them. They fled in boats to get out of the way of the communist North. And by, this is a, a, a heroic and, and really altruistic act of the United States. We, the U.S. State Department entered into a, a partnership with a series of U.S. nonprofits, mostly church-related groups. And formed a, uh, a partnership, uh, a mm. private-public partnership to welcome refugees. And that's now nine um, agencies, including World Relief, who I used to work for, International Rescue Committee, others, uh, to uh, receive all of those refugees. And the number since 9-11 has averaged about 100,000 refugees a year, which, mm. by the way, in a world of 22 million refugees, in a world of 60 million displaced human beings, 100,000 is a pittance. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, such a low number that it's concerning about our moral morality and our ethics. But it's still, it's 100,000 people. Right. Under this administration, the most directly tied to evangelicals, that number last year was 13,000, mm -hmm. dropped all the way to 13,000. And President Trump and this administration has suggested next year it should be zero. And you have evangelicals like the National Association of Evangelicals. You have World Relief owned by the National Association of Evangelicals trying to say this is wrong. That we should right. not, don't conflate a refugee, somebody who's been thoroughly vetted on a, in another third party, third country, who, who has been thoroughly vetted and who's brought securely to the United States. Don't conflate that person with someone showing up at the border. Not that they don't need our compassion as well, but this is not a security risk group. Right, right, right. The fact that that number is so low is a serious warning light mm -hmm. that the United States is has lost the plot, mm -hmm. that we, we are not animated by any sense of our Christian roots, mm -hmm. and that we're allowing fear and xenophobia to overcome our basic commitments uh, as uh, to to the the family of nations. Yeah. What's no, your that's... what's your experience with the pushback argument? Because the, the the argument against so the, those who are that are pushing back on and saying yes, let's build that wall. Yes, let's keep people. You know, for Out. X, Y, and Z. What has been your experience with the art? Because 
I know that there'll be people listening who are like, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but what, what's, yeah. yeah. Well, so there, there are two realities. One, one is the reality of state power and states fight wars. States build, have borders. State states do many things, but the church is not the state. It is as, as has been said, at its best, it is the conscience of the state. Mm. So, so as a Christian who might sympathize with, currently with this regime, your job is not to build a theological justification of why that number is, is uh, acceptable. Your job is to, is to say, but how many can we take? Yeah, 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 I get it. I understand. Yes, I, I'm with you. I've got the red hat. I'm, I'm completely with you, but I can see in the text that if we close our doors, there's this you know, vague passage, I think it might be Matthew 25, where I think Jesus might come at the end where we get our final report card and say, yeah. I came to your border and you didn't welcome me in. Yeah. <laughs> so right. not trying to say the state is the church, but the church is the conscience of the state. Mm. And that's the role that we liberals and, and conservative Christians should come together on and say, how can we work together with the state so that that number can be 500,000 without compromising our security? Why aren't Christians arguing for that kind of generative, hopeful, Christ-centered position for Republicans in power, rather than twisting themselves into a knot to defend the indefensible? Yeah, Mm. absolutely. And and for the listeners, too, we we had uh, Matthew Sorens on no, there you go. Uh, episode, the guy. Yeah, I think it was episode two hundred four. Yeah. So, if you guys are interested in that topic, he goes much deeper than we have time for now on just um, on what a lot of the border issues look like and what World Relief has been doing to uh, help out. Excellent. In that. Yeah, it was. A he great and Jenny Yang, there are no two evangelicals more empowered to speak the truth on this matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I you love know, that. This is... go, oh, go, go ahead, ahead Bonnie. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, the Matthew 25, so that was in my head uh, leading up to this too. So I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking about that. Like, you know, he, he runs through that laundry list, right? Where it's like you, this person, this person, the least of these, the least of these, what you did to them, you did to me. And then fairly mm-hmm. soon after that is the Great Commission, right? The After he, he rises and says, hey, I want you guys to go and make disciples. So it's the seeing those kind of two in hand in hand in a way of like, here's here's a direct a direct you know, message of this is who I, this is how you should operate. This is who should take care of and why, and then saying now go and do that. And what Mm -hmm. it looks like to train disciples to go and do that, I think is such an interesting Mm -hmm. lineage of an argument of who Jesus is and was, and is saying, you know, asking us to be. And I think, Mm -hmm. I think it was you guys were talking. I can't remember if it was in your interview or not. Um, just about, and maybe I was reading an article that you wrote talking about like, those two great commandments, like, Hey, um, you know, what, what are the most important ones? This is love, love the Lord, your God and love your neighbor. And then kind Mm -hmm. of how, what falls under those two things? Like as we relate to people, humanity around us, whether it's the refugee or the immigrant or, um, and and I'm trying to set you up too, for going into this, this lineage of God, um, continually re- reacting to cries for help and for the disempowered mm-hmm. and us mm-hmm. being liberated and being called to liberate, like you had talked about to maybe we can kind of go in that direction a little bit and talk about some of that stuff. Cause I think it's wonderful. Yeah. 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 Very good. Well, you know, that goes, that takes us back to that first geographic location in Egypt and uh, the cry. And, and this word is just so deeply resonant in uh, theological history uh, in, in the text. Uh, sa'ak is the Hebrew word, sa'ak. It's what Abel's blood does from the ground, yeah. which is so telling. You know, the first story told after uh, humanity falls uh, is this what I believe to be an economic uh, struggle. You know, you have one field with two brothers fighting over it, one needs it. Uh, for a different reason than the other. And so now we have the myth of scarcity, which mm-hmm. leads to the myth of redemptive violence. And that frames the beginning of history and, and pretty much all of history. And uh, f- biblical faith is, is a generative power to overcome those two myths with, um, with the truth of a, of a life-giving, you know, effervescent 
creative God, who, by the way, we just read two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall of this God who just makes and endlessly, hilariously brings life. Um, but that word sa'ak, uh, Walter Brueggemann calls it the primal scream that inaugurates redemptive history. <laughs> it's just this, you know, it, it catalyzes something. You had, you, had, you had yesterday, today looking exactly like yesterday, tomorrow a continuation of today. We make bricks for Pharaoh. That's what I do. That's what my father did, my grandfather did. And it's likely to be what we will always do. Mm. Um, and then there gives birth something inside these midwives who say, you know, they begin to, ref they begin to resist what Pharaoh is doing. And that resistance creates some energy, and they begin to cry. And that cry is both, hey, I'm hurting and suffering, but there's also a cry for justice. Aren't we the people of God? Haven't, didn't you speak to our forefathers? Uh, don't you see what's going on here? And that, that uh, cry for justice catalyzes new beginnings. Mm. And, you know, that is true both of those who suffer. So if you're listening to this and you are, struggling with alcoholism or some kind of addiction, my own particular past, cry out beside yourself. Just, just say, just say to the universe, God, help me. God, give me new life. Give voice to that because there is power. In fact, if you're struggling with that kind of addiction, uh, you're somehow at the end of your rope and you voice out loud and just say, help me, save me. You know, you, you are beginning to tap into that kind of spiritual power that can catalyze change for you. So it's, mm -hmm. it's an individual thing. It's a corporate thing. But it's not just for those crying out in pain. It's also for the, the Goldman Sachs investor who has climbed so many mountains and now there's really no meaning to the accumulation of wealth. And I really, I don't know what to do with my growing portfolio and the 2017 tax uh, um, program, you know, doubled it. And now I, I, what do I do with all of this? Right. And here you have sort of a, you have a dearth of that cry. And so you've got to find that primal screen. You know, you got to look around and look at the squeegee boy at the stoplight a little bit differently. And, mm. you know, hey, man, that guy, that kid's working. You know, what What, what can I do to reach out to this kid? Or, or, you know, Burundi, the third poorest economy in the world, or so, somewhere where people are crying, where, there, where there's genuine human suffering, and begin to borrow that cry and join them in that cry. And it can become for you, even with your power, it can be a means by which you cut through that inertia in your own life. Um, and as I said on the Robcast, the, the means meaning equation, you know, those who struggle with everything, but meaning in their lives, those who have everything, but meaning in their lives and those who have the purposeful struggle, but don't have the means mm -hmm. to overcome uh, the material challenges in their life. When you can bring those two forces together, the means meaning equation, wow, it's really generative. And I think it could produce a new frame uh, for how we move forward. Yeah, no, that's so good. And I think um, one of the things we see is when you talk about that primal cry mm -hmm. is um, I see and like makes me so sad. It like makes me want to cry right now thinking about it. But um, is people don't believe people. So like I would hear a lot when people would cry out, like, for example, and say Black Lives Matter yeah. and say, like, we are we are being oppressed. This mm. isn't fair. Racism mm. is still alive. And then for white people to say that's not true. Mm. Um, mm. I think part of that joining in um, is to when people say they're hurting is to believe them, you know, yeah. is to listen and to and to believe them. And you touched very on the myth of scarcity but for me i see such a tie there it makes me immediately think of the parable of the talents like i was mm. always growing up believing um that was a story about like if you give a gift and then you don't use it god will like take your gift and <laughs> turn into this big convoluted thing um mm. but as i've gotten older i realize like the first two servants take these gifts they've been given us so if we're going to parallel what we're talking about here take the liberation the freedom that we've been given and they go out and they do likewise they multiply the mm. same 
same and they view God as a God um, of abundance, that there's mm-hmm. more and there's room for everybody at all the tables and all the cries and we can join in, that the third one doesn't. He takes his gift and he buries it. So that he's marching into that path of irrelevance, like you said. And what makes the master mad is not necessarily that he did that. That's just an outcome. What makes him mad is he's like, you have a view about me that's wrong. Like Mm. you have a view about me that this is a world of scarcity, that you have to hold your power, that you have to take it for yourself, that there's not enough room for all of our cries. And so when you say that, it like resonates with me so deeply because I think that's what's happening is that we on some level believe, gosh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Um, that if we listen and believe someone else's cries Mm. that it somehow diminishes ours Mm. and i think that's such a reflection of how like you said we're all deeply hurting um um but we don't we haven't done the work or we haven't acknowledged it we haven't found our own story so it's hard for us to see someone else's but the beauty is is actually when we join in their cry and we hear their pain we actually might find liberation of ours too it's like this beautiful circle and cycle i think that we just miss out on when we choose not to believe you know you you um the back back to that pattern in egypt who is the god that we serve the God we serve is the God who hears the cry. So if our inclination is to not believe the cries that we hear, yeah. it really has something to do with who we think God is, the God right. that we serve. Because yeah. we want to be listening. That doesn't mean we're not discerning. It doesn't mean, but in but in general, uh, you know, victim blaming or this is about again, you know, protecting our own privilege. But I, I appreciate the passion that you feel, and I think that's that's pointing you know you and and all of us to that place of spiritual energy where we find god we find mercy for ourselves and Mm -hmm. and ourselves as agents of mercy for others yeah okay so don now that we have told everybody all these amazing things let's unveil tell us what you do now and how all this work so you used to work for world relief and you do something now and what is it and how how did um this whole thought process lead into the, your next thing? Yeah. Well, sort of, um, o- overall umbrella is, uh, impact investing. That's, that's the mm. area that I'm, uh, particularly interested in. And, but my journey to impact investing comes through this work of international aid and then into activism and, you know, through both of those, uh, chapters of my career, the, the, global aid and international development work being the longer one, but also the work with Tony Campolo and Shane Claiborne at Red Letter Christians, a mm. team of uh, a network of activists of which I remain part. Uh, uh, the, the lessons that I learned in those times uh, point me in my own, uh, point me to a sense of rediscovery of myself and mm. Uh, you know, when it comes to activism, there are true activists who are called to raise their voice and to to drive towards policy change. And, you know, for me, uh, Shane Claiborne is uh, not only a dear friend, but he, he is a picture of that kind of activism at its very best in that he's dedicated to a cause. He learns about it. He, he puts himself in it, and then he's driving for policy change. So, on, right. for example, in violence and guns, he's, um, you know, w- working to amend gun laws so that they're reasonable, um, putting an end to the death penalty, uh, you know, taking us out of the camp of Iran and Saudi Arabia and putting us in uh, line with other uh, nations of the world that have, uh, you know, punishment for killing someone is not killing someone. Right. Um, hmm. And... Uh, but for me personally, the the you know casting a vision, um, instigating motivation mm. to to do something, and then raising money. You know, I used to say liberating wealthy people from their oppressive wealth. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, uh, I have I've done that for most of my almost my whole career, the last thirty years, and the things that I'm attached to that have to do with commerce. Uh, feel the best to me they look the best to me and they seem to have the most resonance as 
uh, tools for sustainable change. Mm. So, you know, Rob and I work together with Mars Hill Bible Church to see that church invest in a microfinance bank in uh, in Burundi that now has 17,000 clients. That's 17,000 individuals able to take loans, build businesses, pay loans back, and take care of their families. Yeah, we did a lot uh, of ice to work at Food for the Hungry, and we did a lot of work yeah. with microfinance. But can you explain to the listeners what that is for people that don't yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So microfinance was pioneered by uh, a Bengali man named Muhammad Yunus back in the 80s. Uh, and it's, uh, he's founded something called Grameen Bank, which, which means uh, village bank. And the, the idea is that, you know, the poor will not receive a loan because they don't have any collateral. They don't, they can't be given credit, 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 I think is the word for trust. You know, you can't trust the poor mm. to pay a loan back because they have no, have nothing to lose. Right. So the idea of, of community banking or microfinance is that if you if you th- that say thirty women each receiving fifty dollars uh, for a loan, um, each selecting each other because they see them active in the marketplace, they know about them, they they know of their local trustworthiness. Uh, those thirty women each receiving a fifty dollar loan provide collateral for one another. If one of them uh, falls sick and has a problem or goes off the rails and wastes her money, the other group has agreed to pay her loan back. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a self-monitoring um, c- community banking system yeah. that has grown to include now, I don't know what the number is, is it, you know, hun- it's hundreds of millions of, mm-hmm. of recipients and it has some of the most effective repayment rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's uh, and economical now, accountability. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And and it's proven to be a very effective way of providing the poor with access to capital and to financial sustainability. It's not without its challenges and problems, which if you dig into it, you'll find that they're there. What it has not done is uh, effectively catalyze small and medium enterprise. Mm. Um, and according to the uh, Millennium Development Goals of the United Nations, uh, to tackle extreme poverty by 2030, the world needs approximately 600 million new jobs. Mm. And it's estimated that most of those new jobs will come from small and medium business, what they call the missing middle. So at the bottom of the economic enterprise, you have savings clubs, mm-hmm. which is the new sort of form of engagement with the poorest among the economically active, and then microfinance a little bit higher up. And then at the top, you have the world of investments and now impact investing. But in the middle, you have what they call the missing middle, and that are that is the small and medium businesses that don't always have immediate access to capital right. or to the services that they need, um, even though they might have the, the best, they may have a great idea. Uh, so those companies, um, that's my interest now is working with the nonprofits that are committed to seeing those companies come to, uh, investment readiness and then finding, uh, more patient investors or, uh, or charitable investors. That is people who are willing to give a gift or grant not expecting a return, but they want to do it in such a way that it catalyzes business and business growth and, right. and, um, contributes to uh, market-based solutions to economic and uh, uh, environmental problems. So that missing middle, that's where I'm focused. Uh, And it puts me in what I think is the most dynamic conversation today. There's a lot of energy in this field. There's a lot of uh, dynamic change happening in this field as uh, and there's there's really a fundamental reshaping of finance that's happening in the world today, and it kind of brings these two uh, th- th- these two forces uh, into uh, concert, and that is the human development world that I worked in with World Relief and World Vision, and this more ethical reshaping of finance to become more sustainable and more inclusive. Mm, that's awesome, and it like speaks exactly to what you're saying about um, like when we've been given 
something and we can use it to liberate others. I mean, I can't, that must be so wonderful to pair people with these dreams and visions of, hey, this is what I want to do, but I don't have the means. And someone that says, I have the means and I want to bring <laughs> truth and liberate and sort of pair them together. That's, that is incredible. That's really cool. The church, the church focus too, or the, the, uh, like what you guys did at Mars Hill, I think is really interesting because we're kind of in the middle of a conversation about like what, um, you know, we recently had a guest talk about what Paul, like what would Paul be the most uh, surprised about with today's church? And he, and he said like the size of the church, like how many people there are. And so we're constantly been having this conversation about community and the design for church and God's intention. And then that is always intention with how big churches get. And this is constant conversation about, well, these churches are doing something right. People are reacting and resonating with it and just keeps growing. And, but I love that idea of like, you know, you guys kind of sat down and like, okay, well, we have all of this Mm. and what Mm. does that mean? What do we do with it? How do we still come in line with what God has been, uh, trying to talk to us about from the beginning? about Mm -hmm. this injustice or about these people that are crying out. So I think that, you know, I, this idea that you have of of being able to, I don't, I don't even, I'm not sure how to phrase it. You probably have a much better way of phrasing it, but the people that have the means and, and, and like are some, and in some ways feel almost bound by it because they're at a loss Mm. for how to, how to intentionally use it. Providing that I think Mm. is just fascinating. Like, I think it's a really fascinating, um, angle so how like where what what are you doing right now and how can people get locked into that yeah so so i have a, a consultancy called uh, jcq which is a just capital quotient and you know my my job as a consultant is to uh, connect investors uh, businesses nonprofits, philanthropists to the knowledge and networks they need to make a difference with their money hmm. uh, and uh, you know one of the things in the world of investment is that there are, there is this new emphasis on impact investing. That is, I want to impact the world and I want to get a return. And I see that as very much the future. Um, and there is a lot of that work happening now, but still major investment money is still impatient. You know, it still seeks a, and demands a, a quick return. Uh, and lots of businesses, especially in Africa, still aren't there. And so that's why you have as many as 80% of Im- impact investments in Africa are uh, are going to white-owned businesses because right. they speak the language, they have the networks. Not all of that's bad because some of those businesses are great transitions into um, a- African communities. Uh, and, and, uh, and those are the kinds of... So, so my, my group, uh, JCQ, seeks to connect with you know that range the businesses the investors mm-hmm. the philanthropists who want to engage this world and um i bring just because of 30 years of connection uh knowledge and networks uh into where that is happening um in really interesting and, and dynamic ways so just a couple projects that i'm i'm working on one is called the ghana climate innovation center a shesi university in in accra ghana is one of the top business schools on the continent, actually, especially, you know, say outside of South Africa. And it has an accelerator, an incubator. And that, that is every year they go through the country and they find the best, most promising business ideas mm. uh, and business leaders, entrepreneurs. They bring them into a cohort and they invest in them uh, over time to bring them to, uh, they, they bring capital to them. They bring all kinds of economic marketing extension services to help them and then, you know, prepare them to become investment ready. Uh, that's a, they're, an, they're an amazing group. I, I will be taking a, uh, a, a group of investors and interested parties to an event they do every October in which you can have classroom time learning about, uh, the kind of uh, businesses mm-hmm. that are climate smart businesses that are growing up uh, right. in in Ghana, the fastest growing economy in the world. There's so much innovation around energy and agriculture and water and waste. Mm, yeah. uh, and so we'll learn about that and then we'll go out and spend time with these businesses 
and really just encourage people to say, hey, you know, either your smart charity invest in this or perhaps, you know, equity and, and, um, and, and debt that you could invest in this kind of work uh, to see market-based solutions. So, uh, and then I think I mentioned the, the TrailGuard AI. This is an amazing partnership with Intel and Galaxy One to try to arrest what is looking very bleak for the African elephant. I mean, it's mm. a possibility that it could become extinct in 10 years. Yeah. And so there are a group of environmentalists and business folks uh, and, and these technology leaders coming together to create this AI uh, camera that can work to monitor poaching activity and to uh, warn uh, ranger services, mm. you know, in the Serengeti, for example, as big as Maryland, there's like 150 rangers. It's impossible to, right. uh, uh, to, to keep an eye on those elephants. And so this collaboration of high technology, mm. uh, the goodwill of, uh, technology firms, and then the development, human development work of helping equip and, and empower a group of rangers to care for their own resources. We all as humans have an interest in that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're, I have about $300,000 of equity to sell in that business. Mm. And it's an amazing, you know, gr thing to get involved in. I'll be taking a group of impact adventurers to, uh, to Africa to see how this technology works. Um, Robert Downey Jr. He has a new show out called the age of AI. Oh yeah. And his, uh, season one, episode seven, he, he, kicks off that episode with seven minutes on trail guard AI, this project I'm oh, working wow, on. Cool. Look it up. It is just mind blowing. So those, those are just a couple of the innovations. Awesome. They're both human environmentally good. They're market-based and we hope that they will uh, create uh, wealth yeah. both for the investors and for the people involved. And those are just two examples of the kinds of things that I at JCQ am helping people uh, connect with. Oh, that's Man, awesome. I love it. I, it's so there. It's, I just, I love it. I think it's amazing. It's so I intentional in like the coolest ways of mm -hmm. like intentionally tackling something practical that also has ramifications and repercussions, like you're saying, environmentally, socially. Scale, yeah. yeah. And then it's a, yeah. Awesome. How, what are, what are the range? I'm just curious for our listeners, like the range of investors, um, obviously there's people as big as Intel, but what's the mm -hmm. smaller scale of that? For investment no well everyone can reorient their giving towards market-based solutions mm. uh you know you can connect to great microfinance institutions like hope international peter greer's amazing institution that is uh still building and supporting they are now the chief owners of tarame mm. uh, uh and uh, the, the bank in burundi and uh, along with Hakima in Eastern Congo and uh, Owego in Rwanda, uh, Hope International. So you can give $50 to them and your money is going to get into that process of circulation at the level of microfinance or, or um, yeah, and uh, you'll be investing in microfinance. But you can, you know, so, so really there is a way, and that's another thing that I provide is, you know, without any fees, anyone that's listening to me can write me at Don at DonRGolden.com and I'll give you some, what, what I believe are some of the best uh, opportunities to direct your philanthropy uh, to these kinds of market-based solutions. But then, you know, sort of going up the le level, $1,000, $10,000, most of the funds that I work with, $25,000 is sort of the minimum buy-in to, to become an investor in some type of new initiative. But there are there are ways that any amount, especially of charitable dollars, uh, with TrailGuard, those those shares uh, are uh, fifty thousand dollars each, and I can tell you that it is very difficult to purchase artificial intelligence technology yeah. for shares of fifty thousand. Um, but extremely high risk. You know, I, if if you're a person that needs your investment in order to uh, retire on, I'm the last person you should be talking to. Um, <laughs> this is all about either charitable investment or super high risk, but it's the kind of recalibration of uh, finance that's that's unfolding right now that, ha that has to uh, happen more. And I'm, I'm especially interested in those 
business leaders, those people that know how finance works mm -hmm. and are interested in this new world. There are a lot of friends I'd like to introduce them to because yeah. this is where that means meaning equation at the finance level mm -hmm. can be very generative. Yeah. 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 Awesome. So it, uh, Don, can you repeat your email Don, address? Don, yeah, my, my email address is don at donrgolden.com. Perfect. And um, uh, www.donrgolden.com is my website, so you can learn a little bit about uh, this this new idea. And one thing, you know, th this is not just a flash in the pan. This is not right. a new form of charity. This is a fundamental reshaping of finance. Uh, Larry Fink, the uh, CEO of BlackRock, the $7 trillion investment mm -hmm. fund, in his letter, uh, his annual letter uh, to companies, he put them on notice that they will be held to account if they don't adopt the new frameworks for reporting their sustainability. And what, what that means is, rather than just looking good and, and greenwashing your businesses, one of the major investment firms is saying, if you're not taking seriously your impact in this world, your own sustainability mm -hmm. footprint as a company, we will divest from you. Mm -hmm. That put a lot of companies on notice and caused a lot of companies to say, hey, what are we doing and how do we go about it? And uh, my company, my, my firm, um, uh, JCQ, we, we want to help uh, those who still need and want to make money. We want to we jump in there with you mm -hmm. and, and help you, you know, look at your, uh, your, your sustainability disclosures, look at your impact footprint and reconsider how your wealth creation gifts can align um, with this new reshaping of finance. Mm, yeah. I love it. Gosh, Don, I love this. I love everything that you, how you've learned so much on a like throughout all your everything you've done and your travels and your learnings and you connect it on such a personal level to a bigger level of where like nobody's off the hook. Like we all have no, um, no. an answer to give and we all play a part and it can be on all these different levels, but I just love the way you're doing it to make this impact. Like you just said, um, to make sure that things are sustainable and that um, these initiatives, uh, they are moving the needle and they're doing mm -hmm. it in this long-term way to turn this ship around. So I just, I'm but so grateful that you shared this. Yeah. I'm going to pick up on one thing that you said and, and tie it to very much to the world of evangelical mission. Mm -hmm. um, one of the leaders in the world of microfinance is Opportunity International. And the former uh, CEO, David Sims, has started an actual fund, you know, mm -hmm. a, an investment fund. It's not at the $7 trillion like uh, BlackRock yet. Uh, it's at a couple, you know, two or three, about $3 million. But they exist. This fund exists to invest in Africa in job creating businesses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, they've taken their name, Talenton, directly from um, that, uh, uh, that story that you so effectively um, reported uh, from, from the Bible. And they, they are helping people not only not bury their talent, but to, uh, to invest in these businesses. Long Miles uh, Coffee Company in Burundi, mm -hmm. You're talking about a, the third poorest economy, which uh, was at one point growing about 4% a year. But um, when the Kirinziza, the, the president in 2015, changed the constitution so that he could stay in power till 2034, uh. the economy tanked. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet still, Long Miles Coffee Company, this uh, specialty grade craft coffee uh, producer with 5,000 farmers in this whole system that are able to uh, bring their coffee into uh, global trade, they, they not only received a, a $400,000 loan from, uh, from Talenton, but they've paid that back and mm -hmm. are now positioned for another $400,000 wow. loan. Yeah. You know, when that, that shows sort of the world of finance and then the world of self-giving, yeah. you know, passionate human development interests that you see in the best of the evangelical church, really helping build a new, uh, a new economy, a yeah. new, a yeah. new household, or the, the household of faith. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I commend Talenton and that's a group that can take those thousand dollar uh, gifts or $10,000 gifts and can, in, can introduce to 
those of us in the mission evangelical world into this convergence of finance and mission right. that are producing uh, jobs for people. And so that's just another one I wanted to pick yeah. up on because you used, uh, you used that parable. Yeah, mm. that was good. <laughs> that's awesome. That's so great. Gosh, Don, thank you so much for being on yeah, here. My pleasure. My pleasure. So good to be with you. I appreciate your energy and your interest. Yeah. yeah, this has been great. And if you guys have any questions, you can email Don. And we just encourage you to go to his website and, um, and check out all the things he's doing. It's awesome. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Um, thank you for listening to that. So I um, I was fascinated by what he said. First of all, I loved the, the definition he gave between refugees and immigrants. Yeah. I don't think I have fully understood that or um, understood um, how clear cut it was, if that if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so that makes me want to like go back to so many articles I've read or headlines I've read and gone like, oh, what's the difference here? Um, and like just looking more into historically what I've heard and what I've um, sort of deduced from that. So that was fascinating to me. Um, I really like that. That was new to me. And then I, I think he, was, he had so many points that were so interesting, too, was really liked the for geographical places. Yes. of like places in the Bible that we could all sort of find ourselves. I think that no matter what, what you, if you agree or disagree with him, because I know some of it um, that he said, he um, talked about Trump and a lot of people like Trump. And I know a lot of, actually, I know a lot of Christians who have voted for Trump and who are voting for Trump again, but that also might disagree with Trump on certain things. You know what I mean? Like there's so, there can be so much middle ground, but I like the centering point of these four geographical locations of saying, when we draw deeper into our stories, um, we can sort of find the stories of somebody else. So if we can start there as a place to look at marginalized people, um, I know for me, my perspective would change. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that absolutely. I wouldn't just be mad for the sake of being mad or be upset for the sake of being upset, but I would have a very grounded biblical perspective if I started there. Yeah. And just a reminder too, we, and I think we mentioned this in the episode and I don't have it in front of me, but we did have Matthew Sorens on from World Relief. Yes, and we did. Yeah. I, th- I think it was episode 204 off the top of my head, um, which would be amazing if that's the case. But he really goes deep into the that difference between immigrants and refugees and um both from a biblical perspective from a legal perspective um from a def like from our country's definition uh, perspective Mm -hmm. like just a really great fully fleshed out rounded out um conversation on that topic which i have listened to maybe three or four times and i'm still trying to like get all that in yeah. my brain so that I have all that stuff, but he's very articulate. He's very humble in the way that he brings all that stuff forward. So if you're interested in that stuff, that's um, a really I, great, yeah. Yeah. You should, you should go back combo. and yeah. And yeah, the, the locations I thought was great. I also really, um, appreciated how he, how he articulated that God is in the business of liberating and then, mm-hmm. and then kind of calling those who have been liberated to liberate. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a very plain text version of, you know, a lot of that scripture, which I yeah. appreciate. I like, the, I like it when someone breaks it down like that and you're like, oh, all right. Yeah. Oh, that makes more sense. That's I know, a bite-sized I, nugget. I thought of that too, um, in terms of like how that works in all spheres, like we talked about, like, um, I can live that out in literally every area of my life in the way that I think and the way that I act and what I feel like there's so many places that I have been liberated. So again, if I think if we start there, if we dive deep enough into our own story and confront things there and the ways we've been liberated. I think that, um, I don't know, I pray that the Holy Spirit would show me who else I can liberate in the best way possible. Like, cause it's just like a cyclical nature of it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It makes me think of your story with your neighbor with, uh, oh, yeah. um, we need to be people to hold pain well, mm-hmm. right? Is mm-hmm. that how you put it? That's, yeah. I, that, that has stuck with me for a while now. And I think of that, like, uh, when he talked about, um, that God hears the cries of people and the, the blood in the ground. And, um, j- you know, we think about that in terms of marginalized, we, th- we tend to think of that in really big term, big, broad areas, which right. I think can feel overwhelming to people and they don't know 
how to get involved, which is great for people like Don Golden and Matt Sorens to come on and be like, hey, here's practical ways you can get involved from yeah. wherever you are in these big things. But also just the neighbor that's like, you know, going through your, your neighbor, if I remember correctly, was an older man who had just lost mm-hmm. his wife and yeah. didn't seem like he had very many people to kind of process that pain with or to reach out mm-hmm. to, which is obviously can be one of the most isolating things in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just kind of being an intentional person with going in and trying to hold pain well for other people seems like yeah. it kind of fits in that department as well. Yeah, no, totally. And you know, it's so interesting how that played out. Like, so that first time he came over and just cried like on our doorstep and then he yeah. kind of, you could tell felt embarrassed and just kind of walked away quickly, but how it played out was so interesting because it taught me something entirely new. He would bring over, he's now moved. He moved to live with his sister in like Palm Springs, but as he was going through his stuff, he would bring over just these crates of things that were his wife's. Hmm. And he was like, I thought you might want this. And it was stuff I don't want. It was, it, yeah. I don't know that anybody would. It was like, like night, like a better home and gardens from like 1992. I mean, it was like stuff's ripped out is all the stuff. And my son was like, I don't understand why. And, and I'm like, I don't either. And then it hit me. I was like, Oh, he did. He can't, throw this away yeah and he wants to feel like i'm going to give this to someone else i'm going to give this to pass it on and so we just kept taking all this stuff we just kept it was just sitting in our garage and then i went through it and i don't think we kept one thing from from the things yeah but for him he didn't have to go throw that away does that make sense it was this idea of like Oh, we, we, we were able to unburden him from that simply mm-hmm. by going, thank you so much. This is so yeah. helpful. And then that was it. And that was all yep. we had to do. And so it's like these tiny, minute ways that we can do it um, mm-hmm. that show up. We just have to be looking for it, I think. Yeah. So. And I just love this idea. Not an idea. I love seeing ways in which um, like that just that God is very presently active yeah and presently intentional and is just as fervent about um those who are in pain and those who are marginalized as he was in the scriptures that we read Mm -hmm. obviously we're in an interesting time period now because we're we're in live time with it and stuff but i just i don't know i i'm not speaking for everybody but i think that i can kind of forget and can compartmentalize god into something that to believe in something that has existed Right, right, right. And kind of lose the idea that he's here, active, moving, going nuts. And yeah. is still trying to be like, no, 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 I'm like 100% all in on this stuff. Yeah, so. like I'm working and moving and talking. Yeah. And I'm doing literally the same things. <laughs> yeah, and which is yeah. why someone like Don is so fascinating because he brings in like, yeah, I, we're, trying to, we're trying to find all the tangible, like intentional ways of locking in on right. um the things that we think that God is doing that wants he wants us to be doing, et cetera, et cetera. So. Yeah, like a, a continual move as the scripture towards continually liberation and new creation. Yeah. That that wasn't just then, that it's a reality now. So Yeah, I always think about that in terms, and I think I've said this on the podcast before, but the fact that our universe is still growing. Yes, Like yeah. it's still spreading out into things and, and no yeah. one really knows what it's spreading into. But in my brain, it's just like, well, God, like this idea of God being outside of time or whatever, it's kind of like, well, we're looking at that with creation. Yeah. Because create like God created, but is still creating. Yeah. And things are still expanding and growing and changing. And I just think it's so fascinating. And then that way I'm like, oh yeah, of course God's still very Yeah, active. of course he is. Yeah, I know. But at first it doesn't seem like it. You know, he did this thing and now he's waiting for us to get it right. (laughs) Yeah. Once you guys figure your stuff out, you guys can all come and hang out. But until then. Until then, you're stuck there. I know. It's it's just a, it's a great pivot. So it's a good uh, perspective shift. So anyways, we hope you guys enjoyed this again. um, At the very least, if whether agree or disagree, we hope it sparks conversation and um, a look into ourselves and to each other. And we would love to hear from you and hear how we can like, help together if you guys have ideas of uh ways to liberate um in smallest or big stories that seem like not a big deal and stories that seem like a good like put them on our facebook page so we can chime in we can all interact with each other and encourage one another yeah i like that let's let's be people that share stories yeah carry each other's stories that's good and also you know we want to reiterate again 
um, you know, I think our next guest that we have tomorrow, well, I guess if you're listening to this today, then it'll be a week from, well, a whatever. Week from this air our, date. Our next, our next guest <laughs> our next after episode. this episode <laughs> is with uh, uh, Eugene Cho, and, oh, and he right. has a book called um, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk that's dealing with kind of faith and politics and stuff. So, yeah. again, um, you know, I, we haven't interviewed him yet, so I don't know what. Uh, we're going to talk about or what necessarily is going to be said in there, but we want to remind everybody that we're creating a space for that, creating a space for conversation. And um, especially in this season where politics are heating up and it's as contentious as it ever has been that um, to try to practice being uh, gracious with one another and getting ready for those tough family meals and, um, I mean, we're already having them out here in California. So, yeah, as the primaries heat up and then the this actual election season starts to get underway, bear, yeah, barrel <laughs> forward. Let's yeah figure out how we can have these conversations and love and grace with each other. So that's a lot of what um, Cho's book is about. Yeah, and hence the title, "Don't Be a Jerk." So we're excited; it should be fun. Um, we got some more fun guests coming up, and uh, again, we're just grateful. Uh, to be here and having these conversations with you guys. We're grateful that you listen. We're grateful for your support. Um, yeah. Awesome. I'm grateful for you, Bonnie. You too, Tim. I'm so glad we get to have these and this is fun. And it, I love to be stretched and grown and I'm grateful we get to uh, dissect them together. <laughs> it's tough. Yeah. Um, it's so nice to have more than one perspective. So let's be people that share stories. I love it. Yeah, that's a cool idea. It's fun. All right, guys. We'll see you soon.